um, this afternoon or is this evening or afternoon? Kind of in between a little bit. Early evening, late afternoon. I would like to um, give a talk on mindfulness. Mindfulness. So this is what Dilgo Kense Rinpoche says about our minds. What we normally call the mind is the, the deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning. And unless they are immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprints. So that is one... Um, explanation of why mindfulness is so important for us. The other uh, reason why mindfulness is so important, there's this one teaching of the Buddha called the Vipalasa Sutta Sutta about uh, distortions of the mind. Have any of you seen any distortions in your mind? (laughs) Is there anything but (laughs) distortions in the mind? Uh, in this one sutta, you know, the Buddha 27 or 2600 years ago anticipated what we know now as inherent bias. He talked about first the distortions of perception, sanya vipalasa, about, um, you know, how we selectively attend to things in our environment and often misperceive what's happening. You know, uh, what's happening... Uh, close by or what's happening more broadly. And he taught that this uh, distortion of perception leads to citta vipalasa or distortions of thought. That when we perceive things a certain way, it leads to a proliferation of thoughts that we might have. And uh, this proliferation of thoughts actually hardens into something called Adita vipalasa, or distortions of view. And these distortions of view are really the most dangerous, dangerous part of them all. And this is essentially, I think, we can relate it to the teaching of inherent bias. You know, we have bias against ourselves. We see it when we're, uh, you know, we have an idea in our mind of what a good meditator should be doing or should look like and... Sometimes our mindfulness takes on this assessment of, you know, this is not right, this is wrong, and it should be like this or it should be like that. So these uh, distortions. And actually these views, we can consider that they um, unfold into certain hardened views that we don't know are even in there, but are often the source of how we might evaluate or judge what's happening with our walking meditation or our sitting meditation or our standing in line meditation, any meditation we have. And those views, those unexamined assumption of views are things like 
This is the way it's going to be forever. Do you ever have something in your life and not even having to have that thought come to the mind, but just the assumption of that this is permanent and this is the way it's going to be forever. One of the Ita Vipalasas, the distortions of view. Another one is, in order for this to be okay, it should be pleasant. I heard some, heard some moans, yeah. <laughs> if this isn't pleasant, then this isn't right. This should be pleasant. Another unexamined assumption is, I am making this happen, or this is happening to me. That's really a big This idea that we have control over so much more than we really have control over. And somehow we should be able to, we should be able to, not make this happen or somehow impact it. So that is one of the central tasks of mindfulness, of sati, samasati, right mindfulness, is that it clears up this perceptual distortions. Um, and it, uh, the way that uh, the Venerable Analayo, one of our wonderful mindfulness teachers, whose work is all available free online all the time. He says that um, the, one of the functions of sati is to de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. So we de-automatize, um, de-automatization. You know, we think that we know something is when we look at it and we you know, make an assumption about what it is without really understanding what it is. And that is one of the um, most important functions of mindfulness is to, is to let go of that, is to uh, get us back to um, just a questioning mind of what is this, what is happening right now. And actually... Uh, some of you might know of this wonderful monk uh, named the Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. He is, in my view, you know, I was raised a Catholic, so I view him kind of like one of the few popes we have in our tradition. And he just wrote this recently about what he says mindfulness is. So he says that mindfulness is um, the adoption of a particular stance towards one's present experience. And he says, I characterize this as a stance of observation or watchfulness towards one, one's own experience. One might even call the stance of sati as bending back. Bending back of the light of consciousness upon the experiencing subject in its physical, sensory, and psychological dimensions. This act of bending back serves to illuminate the events occurring in these domains, lifting them out from the twilight zone of unawareness into the light of clear cognition. 
So I know that's a lot of words. And the next thing I want to say is we take in all these words and we know that, or one way to think about it is that we have two very distinct knowledge systems. As humans, we have two very distinct knowledge systems. And one is our left brain knowledge system, which is logical and analytic and um, names things and sorts things. It's conceptual and it investigates things, the left brain. And then we have a right brain that is intuitive and synthesizing and that's what we are trying to exercise here within a retreat is we are setting an intention, a very deep and wise intention to let go of our left brain, of this knowledge system that we use all the time, you know, trying to figure things out through thinking something through, through counting things or naming things or even putting them into a framework. And we are privileging our intuitive knowledge system. We are privileging that. And that's what mindfulness works with. I like to say that mindfulness is the data collection system for intuitive awareness. And with mindfulness, we're just looking at what's happening in these four satipatthanas, these four spheres of experience that the Buddha pointed at in the body sphere and in the sphere of um, feeling tone and in the sphere of uh, thinking and emotions and uh, mental subjectivity and in the fourth foundation of um, the way Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it, he calls it experiential phenomenon or the Dhammas, uh, experiences that he had that you know, he's pointing to that we all have. So that's why you know, we're, we're letting go. And you know, I do this all the time too. So this is a common experience of you know, coming to some experience in our mindfulness practice, in our meditation practice, regardless of what posture it's in, and thinking that we could think it through and come to some wisdom or insight with the thinking process. And that's, that's a, a very logical way for us to think. It's how we solve most of the problems in our um, everyday life outside of retreat. But here we're, you know, setting an intention to put that aside, setting an intention to, to strengthen uh, the clarity of our awareness. Lucid awareness is another thing that Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it. Uh, mindfulness is lucid awareness of present happenings. So we are working to strengthen this clear perception or understanding of what's happening in the present moment. And not, uh, not to just accept that we know what it is with our distorted perceptions, distorted thoughts, and distorted views. Does that make sense?
And we know that, I mean, many of us here probably do justice work or service work for people. And we know that there's a huge amount of distorted views that, you know, we could create long lists of them. And we often don't realize that they're in, um, you know, we're basing our objective life on all of them. And that's why we absolutely need mindfulness is to, and you know, trigger warning, this is the, the, the language I use, I s- call it decolonizing. We're decolonizing these uh, views that we have of what it means to be a human or a human in the United States or what it means to be a man or a woman or a, a non-gender binary person or a person of color or an old person or young person or educated person or not, you know, that really influences how we see the world. And mindfulness is to let go of that and let go of having us know what something is right uh, right away and looking more closely. No, no, I don't know what this is. Let's look more closely just to see what's happening with this object as it arises in the mind as it is maintained in the mind and, ha- ha- and as it leaves the mind. If we don't have an idea of what something is, you know, we uh, empty that cup of knowledge and, you know, beginner's mind is really an excellent way to look at experiences that we have. It's a way to, to uh, perpetually build the strength of beginner's mind and um, authentic investigation of these four saripatanas of what's happening in the body, what's happening in uh, pleasant and unpleasant, what's happening in our mind and what's happening with these mental objects. So sati. So sati is a capacity of awareness. Everyone has the capacity to be mindful, but um, mindfulness isn't something that happens without actually building building up some capacity to practice it. It's a capacity of awareness, of awareness. And one way to understand uh, mindfulness, I love this way, that it is a, um, one way that the, the middle path is expressed. And you, many of you have probably heard that one way people talk about Buddhism is that it's the path of the middle way. And mindfulness, you can say that mindfulness is an expression of the middle way and that it holds experience between obsession and denial. So you, something is, uh, becomes known to awareness and you're not obsessing with it, but you're not also denying it. You're just holding it in clear knowing, just knowing it. Uh, another way to think about the middle way is that it holds it between indulgence and repression, between privilege and intolerance. So it doesn't necessarily automatically believe and sink into experiences of the body or of feeling tone or of thoughts or of mental objects, but it also doesn't deny them. And we can see that often 
when we come on retreat, when we're, uh, you know, just expressing. And for me, having us look at what's happening with this heart, mind, body, just paying attention to it with a wordless awareness, with some samadhi, with some level of collected mind, a collected mind or some concentration, that's an act of love, isn't it? I remember one of my friends said uh, when uh, her son was really little, he would always grab her face and direct it towards her and say, no, pay attention to me as a way to say, you need, I need some love right now. And does, isn't that what we do to our partners and our pets and our, you know, the people? It's like we want attention as an expression of love and care. And that's what we're giving to ourselves right now. What an incredible gift. So when we do that, when we're turning towards our own hearts and our minds and saying, I'm with you here, I'm watching, a lot of times uh, it can be a uh, detoxification period. I don't know if any of you are experiencing that. A detoxification of things that you've put on the back burner to figure out or things that you didn't want to see. One of... uh, one of our teachers, Ken McLeod, a Tibetan teacher, says that, for example, emotions just need to be known, to be felt, for them to serve their purpose and then to, uh, to float away. And this is what we're doing here. We're just opening up to things that we were obsessed with or indulged with or privileged We're opening to things that we've denied or repressed or we're intolerant of. And just knowing them with gentle acceptance in this moment. And we don't need to do anything else. All we need to know, all we need to do is just acknowledge what's here in this moment. You know, bodies, our bodies are like this. Breath is like this. Looking as closely as we can. Pleasant sensations are like this. Unpleasant sensations are like this. Sadness is like this. Joy, anger, doubt, any of those things. They just want to be known. That's their function. So sati sampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. So in the Abhidhamma, which is another fancy-schmancy Buddhist um, teaching system, they say these things about mindfulness. Its salient characteristic of mindfulness is non-superficiality. It uh, is non-superficial. It really understands and sees clearly the true nature of things. Its function is absence of confusion. That's a nice one. If we are mindful, we are not confused. We know what is happening in the moment. And its manifestation is the state of being turned towards an object, of just resting in the middle and watching as the most predominant thing in our awareness arises, maintains, and passes away. So um, 
there's something associated with sati or mindfulness, and that is sampajana, sampajanya. And I, I really like the idea of sampajanya. And it is the thing that really supports the strength of mindfulness or sati and its continuity. And there are four things that, uh, to, four dimensions to this idea of clear comprehension or sampajanya. Sati Sampajanya. The first is to recognize motivation. You know, what is your intention for practice? Is it to clear up and to bring, um, you know, or whatever, just seeing what our intention is or our motivation is in this moment? And we can even ask ourselves that question. Not our thinking mind, our conceptual mind, We can just pose it to our hearts. The second dimension of clear comprehension is suitability, the appropriate time and place to practice. And this is a pretty important one around developing of the, you know, keeping the precepts and knowing what really contributes to the development of sati and sampajanya. For example, I remember sitting once a month at the Forest Refuge at uh, IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, and my dear friend and teacher was my teacher, Kamala Masters. We love her. (laughs) And she's like a no-nonsense person, boy. She is just so... She just wrote a book with her ex-husband, too, on... um, on the progress of insight from uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, just translated it, it's an excellent book. But she told me, you know, I was, I think it was the first or second meeting I had with her for this month long, and she said, Bonnie, I know that the loop is really beautiful, but the loop is not an appropriate place for practice. You know, you're probably not gonna strengthen your uh, clear seeing just taking multiple walks around the loop. And that was, you know, she trusted that I understood what her motivation was, and that was for my freedom. That was her motivation for my well-being. So she didn't pay, you know, didn't have any um, hesitation to be very specific about where I should practice and for me to keep a very high standard for that. And I absolutely thank her for that. I think... You know, on this retreat, we're not doing that because people are very new to the practice. But as you progress, you might want to think about that. Where is the appropriate uh, time and place for me to practice? And then appropriate domains. How can you have sense restraint? You know, and how does sense restraint play a role in us um, working with and developing our mindfulness? For example, it's very uh, well known within the Vipassana meditation scene that two things happen very often on retreat, and that is the Vipassana vendetta and the Vipassana romance. (laughs) So you'll either fall in love with somebody in the room or just imagine that your worst enemy is in the room. And um, that's very common. This happened to me, for sure. And we just want to know that if those fantasies are arising, because we don't really know who's in the room, 
uh, one response to that is just to not try to be around that person one way or another, is just to steer clear of that, is not to feed, feed that delusion in the moment. So that's one example of appropriate domains. And then the fourth dimension of sampajanya or clear comprehension is non-delusion, is seeing the three characteristics, which is um, considered to be uh, the three characteristics of any conditioned phenomena or any conditioned thing. There's three things about them that you really want to see. And you might incline your mind to see it, but we just want to see it with uh, clear, non-conceptual awareness. We don't want to put a lot of thinking on top of it. And those three, those uh, three things are the um, the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned existence, and the impermanence of the ever-changing nature of anything that arises to awareness. Is there anything that arises to awareness that doesn't change? No. And uh, actually they say that the, the most useful insight is to see impermanence. And the third one after uh, unsatisfactoriness and impermanence is to see the non-personal nature of any phenomena. That is the uh, fourth dimension of Sampajanya the non-delusion clear seeing of unsatisfactoriness and of impermanence and of things not being personal. I love the third one, the idea of seeing the non-personalness of everything that arises. And I think that you know, we can use uh, our thinking mind just briefly to incline the mind towards certain insights. For example, I like to remind myself that, you know, aversion and uh, anger, I was raised with a lot of self-pity and I've been deconditioning self-pity for a long time. Or a victim status, I've been deconditioning being a victim. And... Um, one useful reflection for me is I didn't invent victimhood. Victimhood existed way before I was ever even born. So it is not something personal to me. It is an element of common humanity. And I, you know, I think that I'm in, a, in an exquisite club of people who have an idea of being a victim an exquisite club of people all over the world. You know, it's not just me. So those are the four dimensions of sati-sampajanya. Motivation, suitability, domain, and non-delusion. And now, getting right into the four, what are the four satipatthanas, the four foundations of mindfulness? how we talked really nicely this morning and led us through an observation of mindfulness of the body, of the breath, and then of the body. And we know that um, 
linking into the Burmese tradition, I think we even called it Mahasi Light, that we have, um, you know, we want to develop some samadhi or some concentration of mind by anchoring in a sensation in the body, usually the breath. And usually uh, Mahasi taught that one of the most uh, strongest sensations of the breath was actually at the abdomen, the pushing and pulling or rising and falling of the um, abdomen in breathing. And, you know, not necessarily um, what we want to do with our mindfulness is to go in as close as we can to that sensation. And in the beginning, it might be very helpful to use soft mental noting to keep us connected to that, like rising or falling, or even counting our breaths from maybe one up to six and then back down again, just to to develop some focus. But at some point, we can also let go and just see clearly with our mindfulness what those sensations are. Sensation of pushing and pulling and the sensations of the breath there. Many people doing concentration practice will uh, use the uh, sensation of the breath right here at the nose as a way to develop very deep concentration of just feeling that in and out breath. You know, just feeling it. Feeling the sensation there builds samadhi. So that's the first foundation, observations of the body. And I'd like to just say a word about how to handle physical pain in training. That was actually a great question this morning. And one thing we should know is that, you know, we don't want to use our ego to just maintain a position that's painful. There's no really reason to do that. Uh, We could absolutely investigate, as um, I think Howie said, You know, pain is a concept, a conceptual overlay, and there's usually more to be known about this sensation in the body. Is it a throbbing or a pulling or, you know, a heaviness to just open to whatever the experience is and see our own uh, deeper perception of it and see how it changes? I mean, that too has those three characteristics of it and to see how it might change. So, um, you know, it's wrong view to think that the self can control pain. And um, so we just want to investigate that a little more closely. Personally, what I do, I take Tylenol. (laughs) (laughs) I know that the first few days of retreat are painful, uh, of a retreat have, you know, certain body feelings and actually emotional feelings as well. And I'll take Tylenol for the first three days until my body gets a little bit more into the the practice of sitting. And there's much more to be said about the first foundation. But going on to the second, we know that the second foundation is something called feeling tone. It is uh, pleasant sensations unpleasant sensations and neither pleasant or unpleasant, also also known as neutral sensations. And there's certain things that happen. These, uh, Vedana is hugely important for, um, it's hugely useful to be aware of what our habitual and 
uh, habit patterns regarding these three um, these three uh, sensations. Pleasant sensations, you know, all of us are trained just to run after pleasant sensations, whether they're useful for us or not. You know, we have this habitual, uh, probably often unacknowledged habit, a habit pattern of mind of running after pleasant, regardless of what it is. And we have this very common habit pattern of running away from unpleasant, regardless of whether it's helpful for us or not. And we have the one that I think is really interesting is neutral Vedana, neutral feeling tone. We totally space out and start looking for entertainment. I'm sure that, you know, you might notice even in meditation, what happens when a neutral feeling tone happens, that's when we start kicking up the stories and the thoughts start coming up. It's a way to entertain ourselves in light of neutral feeling tone. But if we took, you know, we can take neutral feeling tone or any of these things as a specific uh, anchor for our practice to investigate more about them. It's pretty interesting to do that. And then one other um, kind of advanced way to think about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral is that there's two types of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. There is world, worldly pleasant, unpleasant, and neutrally, uh, and uh, neutral feeling, and unworldly pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling. And that is uh, the bliss that can come and the interesting sensations that come from meditation and from deep practice. Many of you have probably, maybe you haven't noticed it, but remember the first time my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, said to me, I was telling him about having these memories or ideas that were obviously really painful, but I was holding them within a field of joy. I don't know if some of you have probably experienced that. When we're into the fourth foundation of mindfulness and the seven factors of awakening, one of them is joy. And we can feel there's just a, a um, field of joy and all of these unpleasant um, thoughts and emotions can come up and we hold them within that field. So that's the distinction between worldly or unworldly. The third uh, foundation of mindfulness we know is mindfulness of thoughts and emotions and of um, mental frames. I like to think of it of when I have a bad mood, the bad mood is like a, or when I'm cranky, which I have been, <laughs> is that it's like a, uh, a mist over my perception and everything looks wrong and everything looks like they're trying to screw me or something else, right? It's like we have these mental states that um, influence how we're seeing the world and uh, keeping us from seeing things as they really are. So that's mindfulness of emotions and thoughts and mental states. And working with emotions, there's so much to say about that, and we'll be having instructions in the morning about that. But the Buddha has this really wonderful uh, teaching. If a person is struck by an arrow, is that painful? Yes. 
The Buddha then asked, if the person is struck by a second arrow, is that even more painful? And this idea that our reactions, our habitual reactions to just the dukkha of the world is really what we have a lot more control over. We don't have a lot of control over dukkha dukkha, which is just, you know, how these bodies break and get old and age and, you know, there's a lot of problems with it, but how we're holding that and what we expect out of life, you know, we don't need to add that second arrow. And that's where um, working with emotions and thoughts can really bring us a lot more well-being by realizing how we expect the sun not to rise or the, you know, moon not to be out at night. We, you know, we expect things that we have no control over not to be the way that they are. And that struggle is the second arrow. If we can surrender and just realize that, you know, this is not personal. I'm not making this happen. You know, this is what it means to be human. It actually makes us much more intimate with each other. And then the fourth foundation is essentially the five hindrances, which, uh, you know, if you're struggling on the cushion and you can't, can't stop thinking or you can't stop, settle down, I always do a hindrance check. Am I too sleepy and lethargic? Is my energy level too low? Am I um, restlessness and worrying? Is there a particular thought pattern of, you know, we have these um, habitual ways of thinking that show up and we can see them more clearly when we're in practice. And we can just kind of check the box, oh, worry, worry. And maybe you have a particular worry about family, worry about work, worry about money, you know, name what your predominant worry is. Or restlessness, just not being able to settle down. And then greed or aversion. This is what should be happening in my meditation. It's like greedy for some other experience that isn't there. And just watching that, oh, there's greed in my mind. These things just become the next thing that our mindfulness knows. We don't need to do anything about it but know that it's there. That's all we need to do. Because when our, uh, we have satisampajanya, when we have clear comprehension, wisdom does the work. Wisdom lets go of these things, not us. And then the uh, fifth hindrance is doubt. Self-doubt, like, am I doing this right? Always thinking, is this the right way to do it? Or do those teachers know what they're talking about? Do they even have any mindfulness? So that's just doubt in the mind. And just check it off. Oh, there you are again, doubt. And if you have doubt about the practice and, you know, what the teachings are, that's totally fine. You know, the Buddha said, don't believe anything I say. You know, see whether this works for you. But you might just put it aside for these five days we have together. And definitely, you know, actually even write down, check into this so you can let go of that doubt here in this moment. So those are the 
the uh, four foundations of mindfulness and the five hindrances, which is the, uh, and the fourth foundation. That's what the Buddha saw. That's what he saw in his own mind. And actually after that, people think about it that the hindrances are like getting across the breakers of the mind. We're swimming past the breakers that are throwing us back on the shore. And then uh, what'll start appearing are the seven factors of awakening which are really very beautiful mind states and mind states that we cultivate and that we build the strength of, which is where a lot of our well-being can be. And those are, you know, mindfulness is the, is, uh, the first factor of the seven factors. And there's three arousing factors and three calming factors. And the arousing factors are investigation. Just... You know, you should notice when you have investigation in your mind, it's such a beautiful quality, like wanting to know what is that, or I'm interested in that. You know, you want to uh, strengthen your uh, investigation in the mind. And after that comes uh, energy or effort, like an effortless effort. You know, you don't have to worry about it, just effort is there. And then out of effort uh, comes joy or rapture. And sometimes it's very physical or sometimes it's mental and in the heart. This can be very uh, faint, you know, this faint sense of joy or rapture or it can also be, you know, very strong and, you know, we can feel it in our body. Those are the three arousing. And then there's three calming. Uh, Joy and rapture lead to tranquility. Isn't that interesting? Rapture is the proximal cause for tranquility or relaxation to arise. uh, Tranquility, relaxation, and then concentration, which is a sense of non-distractibility, being able to really hold an element. And out of that comes equanimity. Those are the three calming, stabilizing factors. And I'll tell you, oftentimes, uh, probably towards the end of this retreat, you'll be looking to make sure that those two things are balanced. You want to balance the arousing with the calming factors. So that is our absolute wonderful uh, quality of mind that we are all trying to develop and strengthen. And this is um, a little saying by Brad Warner on that, effort versus success. Effort is more important than so-called success because effort is a real thing. What we call success is just the manifestations of our mind's ability to categorize things. This is success, this is failure. Who says, you says. That's all. Reality is what it is beyond all concepts of success and failure. So with that, let's sit for a minute. May we all remember rain to recognize 
and accept and allow and to investigate and to not take personally, to know the nature of these heart-mind-body processes. We all develop sati sampajanya. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.